In his lifetime, John Brown was hated, especially by pro-slavery Southerners and Northern racists who resented him for trying to uproot and destroy the status quo of racist servitude and exploitation. While widespread prejudice against Brown is familiar in U.S. culture today, I often think that not a few of Brown's critics actually love to hate him, which is to say that there is some kind of fascination with him that adheres to popular thinking. Many of these people would say they are anti-slavery, but they typically raise Brown's use of violence as a basis for dismissing him. Perhaps some of these people are nonviolent themselves, so their argument is understandable. But in many cases, objections to Brown suggest some kind of embedded prejudice. While they will grudgingly grant that he was right on the issue of slavery, John Brown just doesn't deserve their admiration in historical terms as far as they're concerned. Pressing them on the matter doesn't do much good either. Lots of white people react to Brown as a kind of cultural habit, the way many of us still say God bless you when someone sneezes, but the reaction is negative. Meanwhile, the internet is full of random self-appointed experts, bloggers, journalists, writers of all kinds, all self-assuredly opining about John Brown despite knowing little or nothing about him, and always along the lines that he was crazy or some other negative presumption, especially terrorism. Overall, the common contempt for Brown is shallow and reactionary, evidence that many people have been propagandized more than educated. In contrast, a smaller number of people actually hate John Brown for reasons consciously grounded in an ideological, experiential, and existential commitment to the so-called values that typified the advocates of slavery in the antebellum era. These critics truly manifest the enmity of the historical white supremacist that John Brown himself faced in his lifetime, the same mentality that ultimately required his death. Romancers of the Confederacy, white supremacists, and other racists invariably hate John Brown. In today's episode, I want to reflect upon one such enemy of Brown's legacy, one of his most vitriolic critics in the late 20th century, one whose contempt for the abolitionist drove him to write a hostile biography that still has an audience today. From New York City, this is John Brown Today, and I'm your host, Louis A. DeCarroll, Jr. Otto Scott was born Otto Joseph Scott Estrella in 1919 and died in 2006, but his writings and videos are still quite influential. He's widely known and loved by neo-Confederates and ultra-right-wing Christians. Although he's a hero of contemporary Confederate loyalists, Scott also labored greatly on behalf of the interests of the wealthy and the powerful in the Western world. It was no exaggeration for the Southern Partisan, the premier neo-Confederate magazine, to eulogize Scott as one of the greatest conservative writers and thinkers of the Cold War era. This was not a man who cared for the plight of the poor and the oppressed, especially in the non-white world, nor could he have cared for those who were their sworn allies, like John Brown. Scott served in the United States Merchant Marines during World War II, afterward working in advertising and journalism although a Wikipedia entry says he worked in journalism in Virginia and California prior to entering the Merchant Marines. Regardless, this path led him to embark on a long career as a published author of various themes as diverse as the histories of the Ashland Oil and Black & Decker companies and the stories of Ropespierre, 
James I, and John Brown, the abolitionist. All told, Scott published 10 books, along with numerous articles in many publications, including the Los Angeles Times, the Conservative Digest, and Human Events. However, among conservatives, Scott was known for his own monthly publication, Otto Scott's Compass, a journal of contemporary culture. The latter had a considerable run of 15 years, ending the year before his death. One of Scott's relatives aptly observed that he was, quote, one of the great many Americans who are well known to a special audience, but unknown to the nation at large, end quote. In Scott's case, his special audience was predominantly one of ultra-conservative Caucasians with interests in the maintenance of the present order of the Western world. Throughout his professional life, Scott made a living as both a businessman and as the chronicler of big business. The anonymous author of the article in Wikipedia about Scott states that between 1954 and 1963, he held three vice president posts in Globaltronics de Venezuela, Moore Associates, and Becker Scott and Associates. He was also assistant to the chair at Ashland Oil Incorporated in the year 1968-69. Even Scott's family members acknowledged that he largely made a living from his corporate biographies. As a bona fide gatekeeper of the status quo, Scott was extremely critical of any real or perceived radicalism and liberal or left-oriented ideas, and was also opposed to any liberation movement that challenged what he upheld as the supremacy of the Christian West. He was highly critical of the anti-apartheid movement in the 20th century, and he bitterly attacked the abolitionist movement of the 19th century in historical retrospect. Although Scott became a major didactic figure for ultra-conservatives in later decades, he had already influenced the conservative movement as an ideologue by the late 1960s. Most notably, he's credited for inventing the phrase, the silent majority, a term made popular by Republican President Richard Nixon. According to Wikipedia, Nixon apparently appropriated the phrase from a speech that Scott wrote for the CEO of Ashland Oil entitled, The Silent Majority, delivered to the Chicago Men's Club in May 1968. No doubt, Scott's cachet was further enhanced when he allied himself with the ultra-conservative reform theologian Rusus J. Rushduni, a fringe Calvinist intellectual who similarly influenced President Ronald Reagan's political ideology. The two ultra-conservative thinkers chaired a radio program and Scott published regularly in Rushduni's magazine, The Chalcedon Report. Scott's alliance with Rushduni was significant for his future lionization among extreme Southern conservative Protestants, some of them neo secessionists. Scott and Rushdeny, like the rest of their ilk, despised the secular North as the vector of liberal abolitionist ideology, the forerunner in their thinking of present-day liberalism and left-oriented politics and religion. Scott is said to have had some kind of conversion experience after reading the four New Testament Gospels in one night. However, it's not clear if Scott ever had church affiliation until his final role as scholar-in-residence at the Tri-City Covenant Church in Summersworth, New Hampshire, between 1998 and 2004, quote, where he provided historical insight to the school and church staff and assisted in Sunday school instruction, high school history, and Bible and economic courses. At the time, at least, Tri-City Covenant Church was a congregation that followed the so-called Reconstructionist teachings, also known as theonomy, or dominionism, of Rushduni, Gary North, and other right-wing reformed extremists. Reconstructionists are like libertarians with a Calvinistic theological and philosophical orientation, and they're hostile toward liberal and leftist politics in particular. 
Reconstructionists are generally distinguished by their belief that the Mosaic Law should be enforced as the law of the land, that is, in the United States. For this reason, even conservative evangelicals find Reconstructionists problematic. In 1996, the conservative Christian activist Ralph Reed wrote, quote, Reconstructionism is an authoritarian ideology that threatens the most basic civil liberties of a free and democratic society, end quote. Theologian Richard J. Newhouse thus appropriately describes Reconstructionism as a bastard form of Calvinism, contending that the American constitutional order must be replaced by a new order based on Bible law, end quote. Church historian Carl Truman concludes that Rushduni, Otto Scott's good friend, quote, was historically incompetent, probably racist, end quote, and, based upon his use of questionable sources, probably unhinged, too. In this light, one can understand why Otto Scott was so embraced by Reconstructionists, especially since he shared their core white supremacist values. Like Scott, Rushduni and his colleagues have proven extremely sympathetic to the Confederacy in historical retrospect, just as they defended racist South Africa at the peak of the anti-apartheid movement. Anything that smacks of egalitarian or liberationist ideas is understood as rooted in godless ideology to Reconstructionists, and this was well-suited to Otto Scott. Rushduni and his Chalcedon Foundation proved to be extremely supportive of white Southern nationalism, especially showing proud devotion to antebellum pro-slavery theology. The Chalcedon Foundation allied with the Alabama-based League of the South in the 1990s, and Scott himself was the featured speaker at the League's 1995 convention. He even produced videos for the League dealing with their historical and political reinterpretations of the Civil War and slavery. According to an insightful Christian blog entitled Racist Churches, Scott allegedly pronounced regret over the increasing number of non-whites in the U.S. Congress and also supported racial profiling by authorities. He uplifted the so-called Caucasian race as the, quote, most essential to the continued progress of world humanity, end quote, and disdained the removal of an interracial marriage ban in post-apartheid South Africa. It is also reported that Scott once stood at the grave of Thomas Stone Wall Jackson in Virginia and declared that it marked, quote, the end of Southern civilization, end quote. This depraved orientation clearly provides the basis for Scott's malignant interpretation of John Brown. Before I proceed, however, I should add a small footnote of sorts. Whatever one's political orientation, it is not a given of history that conservatives have categorically despised John Brown. In fact, he has always had admirers along a range of conservative views. Certainly, John Brown's studies was largely carried into the 20th century by two conservative researchers, Boyd B. Stutler and the Reverend Clarence Gee. While Gee was probably the more socially thoughtful of the two, Stutler was a hard-nosed right-winger who disparaged the civil rights movement of the 1960s as having been too extreme. Notwithstanding this backwards view, Stutler recognized the essential rightness of John Brown's anti-slavery effort and admired his willingness to die to end human bondage in the United States. For the record, even Richard Nixon, coming from a Quaker background, apparently held a soft spot in his heart for old Brown. 
at the time of the United States bicentennial in 1976. Nixon even made reference to Brown's words. My point is not that the politics of men like Stutler were correct, or that their brand of conservatism was identical to Brown's political outlook. However, when it comes to John Brown, conservatism has never been represented by one opinion, and certainly not the opinion of right-wing neo-Confederates. Furthermore, Stutler would hardly have approved of Scott's narrative, so replete with political contempt and mean-spirited accusations of Brown and the abolitionist movement. Scott's primary source in his own writing is the work of James C. Mallon, a Kansas scholar whose book, John Brown and the Legend of 56, published in 1942, was probably the last significant scholarly effort to flagrantly discredit John Brown. Writing in 1959, Rabbi Louis Rukames, editor of the quintessential collection A John Brown Reader, called Mallon, quote, the foremost anti-Brown historian who seems unable to forgive the North for having used force against Southern secession or the abolitionists for having taught that the abolition of slavery would be a step forward for American society or the Negro for having believed that his welfare would be furthered by the forceful elimination of slavery, end quote. Interestingly, Rabbi Rukame's insightful evaluation of Malin could easily apply to Otto Scott as well. As Rukames observes, quote, Brown haters are simply unintentional blunders. Very few anti-slavery leaders and writers emerge unscathed under Malin's furious onslaught. Typical of his method are his comments on Emerson, Thoreau, Parker, and the other leaders of the New England opinion, whom he contemptuously refers to as, quote, the New England transcendental hierarchy, the self-appointed keepers, not only of New England culture, but, according to their own estimates, of national civilization, end quote. In retrospect, Scott not only appropriated Mallon's prejudiced hypothesis, but sought to extend it beyond Brown's story in Antebellum, Kansas. Meanwhile, serious scholars across the board, from conservative Stutler to left-leaning Louis Rukames, had exposed Mallon's book as flawed and untrustworthy. While Mallon's effort had general value in presenting the hellish mayhem of the Kansas Territory, his one-sided, ham-handed treatment of Brown and the anti-slavery side was warped and untrustworthy. Yet Scott saw Mallon only as, quote, a truly great American historian, end quote, and critically accepted his problematic book, which he lauded as, quote, a classic of historic investigation and analysis, end quote, because it suited his base politics. Retrospectively, Scott continued to praise Mallon for portraying Brown simply as a, quote, multiple murderer and robber in the Kansas Territory, end quote, even though these allegations were intentionally based upon a selective reading of pro-slavery sources. In the short term, Mallon's John Brown and the Legend of 56 gave ammunition to anti-Brown scholars, but soon the author was exposed, his work was discredited, and his scholarly reputation was duly diminished. Scott whined about this, too, claiming that Mallon's only crime was that he had, quote, outraged the Academy, end quote, a ridiculous assertion, particularly because prominent historians in the mid-20th century were hardly warm toward abolitionism and John Brown. To Otto Scott, Mallon and his fetid book were the victims of academic obloquy. In reality, Mallon's work simply was too tainted and biased to be trustworthy. To this day, no credible historian would use it without exercising extreme care, something that Scott definitely did not do. In fact, he went on quite uncritically to make the greatest use of Mallon's propaganda for his own anti-Brown screed, The Secret Six, The Fool as Martyr. The identity of the fool, in Scott's mind, is easy to surmise. 
Scott's own treatment of John Brown, the fool as martyr, actually was third in his series known as the Sacred Fool Quartet, critical biographies about, quote, extraordinary fools whose follies influence the course of all our lives, end quote, or so Scott's claim goes. He continues, without them, history would have been different, and our lives would today be lived along patterns beyond our powers to imagine, end quote. Besides John Brown, Scott's historical fool hunt targeted King James I of England, Maximilian Robespierre, and the French Revolution, and President Woodrow Wilson. Scott thought these historical figures were, quote, sacred, in that society had supposedly conferred a form of immortality upon them, irrespective of character. Having fed from Malin's poison plate, Scott's anti-Brown work thus extended the theme and blanket condemnation of the abolitionist movement with the particular intention of blaming them for the ruin that befell the South in the Civil War. Scott thus opines, the cost of abolitionist virtue ran high. Officially, the record is 621,000 dead, he concluded, of the Civil War death toll. It's difficult to imagine anyone attributing the expansive deaths resulting from the Civil War to the abolition movement without thinking the writer must be a revivified slave master. But this represents the kind of mind and spirit that animated Otto Scott. Interestingly, the first edition of Scott's anti-Brown book was published by Times Books, the publishing arm of the New York Times, in 1979. Although the book was smuggled to press... Scott's Secret Six nearly proved a Trojan horse to the old gray lady. Certainly, Times Books was an unlikely home for Otto Scott's anti-liberal screed, except that he had an inside connection with Tom Lipscomb, a business associate who had become the head of the press. The book was hesitantly published, but it grated upon the legendary Times executive Sidney Grusin, who rightly observed that it lowered the tone of the company. Fearing that his opus would get buried, Scott pulled the rights of the book, bought back the remaining copies, and donated them to his friend Rush Dooney. Fortunately for Scott, there was sufficient interest and money in the South, and the book was republished eight years later by the Foundation for American Education in South Carolina, possibly a Klan-related organization. Although Scott lamented that his book had nearly been murdered by the establishment, The Secret Six was much more viable than he portrayed. Scott may not have had liberal money behind him, but he had right-wing support, especially in a willing audience among neo-Confederates and Reconstructionists. The book was finally published under another label in 1993, which seems to have been Scott's own imprint. Otto Scott died in 2006, but his book continues to feed the same counter-establishment of radical right-wingers, neo-Confederates, and Reconstructionists. For this audience, The Secret Six is taken as definitive and quoted by unknowing bigots as if it were the last word in historical terms. Scott undoubtedly knew that he had made a niche for himself with his anti-Brown book. His other fool books are extant but rarely mentioned. In The Secret Six, Scott took the Southern screed to a sophisticated and polished level of argument by cynically portraying John Brown as a deluded killer in collaboration with liberal New England elites and other subversive figures. Scott affirms the foundational sentiments of neo-Confederates and ultra-conservatives who deeply despise liberalism in government and society and who resent the national and global changes that are challenging traditional white supremacy in state and in the church. Now, it's not my intention to do a book review in this episode. 
Rather, I prefer to use Scott's own subsequent reflections as published in The Southern Partisan, which present his essential argument about Brown and abolitionism, as well as background to his research and the publication of the book. However, there are a couple of points that need to be made in highlighting the fundamental errors of his interpretation. First, Scott's bibliography belies the lack of fairness that defines his work, particularly regarding Brown. Scott demonizes John Brown over against the opinion of every credible biographer over the past century. His narrative not only impugns Brown, but inherently accuses every scholar, including myself, of being a liar and a false propagandist by our presentations vis-a-vis the historical record. If Scott is correct in his profile of John Brown, then Villard, Oates, Stavis, Boyer, yours truly, Reynolds, Carton, McGlone, and even Tony Horwitz have misread the facts to a significant degree. Not that all of us agree on every point, and some of us have considerable differences about the old man. Yet none of Brown's responsible biographers have portrayed him or the abolitionist movement in the manner insisted upon by Otto Scott. Equally important, if not more so, Scott's work is both selective and derivative. Like Robert Penn Warren before him, Scott only mined the most negative assertions of Oswald Villard, for instance, and otherwise ignored the more positive and balanced aspects of biographers like Villard, Boyer, and Oates. Otherwise, his work offers nothing new, original, or based upon primary research. From Stutler, Gee, Edwin Cotter, and Tom Vince to Gene Libby, Scott Wolfe, and others, including my own research, Those who have studied John Brown extensively over time and in great depth simply do not recognize the John Brown of Scott's rendering. Far from being a historical portrayal, Scott's fool is a straw man, a self-serving character that suits his prejudices and privileges his political agenda. Third, Scott diminishes people of integrity who were Brown's allies and supporters during and after his death. Besides his obvious criticisms of the Secret Six, so-called, and other liberal abolitionist clergymen, Scott essentially calls Frederick Douglass a liar, quote, disingenuous in his testimony about John Brown. Fourth, Scott's argument paints the crisis between abolitionists and the South with such broad brushstrokes that he obscures the fact that Christians across the theological spectrum were opposed to chattel slavery and saw it as a great sin. While it is true that many leading abolitionists were, quote, liberal clergymen, there was no lack of stridently evangelical and even Calvinistic anti-slavery people in the North, too. The abolition movement may have had a preponderance of so-called liberals in Scott's terms, but the anti-slavery and abolitionist premises were not essentially based upon heterodoxy. For instance, the counterparts of Reformed Presbyterian slaveholders in the South were the Covenanted Reformed Presbyterians, a movement descended from the Scottish Protestant Reformation. The Covenanters, as they were called, were fervent anti-slavery people and argued against slavery explicitly from the Bible and the Calvinist tradition. John Brown himself was a traditional Calvinist, a point that Scott never properly or fairly assessed because his only interest was in presenting him as a murderous fool in cahoots with no northern liberal heretics. Brown was religious, Scott says, but certainly not Christian. Even in his death, Brown died like every dark pagan selected for holy execution in places like the Orient, Pacific, Africa, India, and other parts because the gods demanded sacrifices for the good of the majority. Finally, Scott's viewpoint necessarily plays down and denies the evil of chattel slavery and makes the slaveholding South a victim of northern aggression. 
In his understanding, it was anti-slavery people who were acting out with, quote, raging demonstrations against the Fugitive Slave Act in the North, just as it was the initial exertions of old John Brown, he writes, that caused Kansas rhetoric to shift into violence. The Northern heresy led to the Civil War, writes Scott, while noble Christian Southerners watched the Northern paroxysms with fear and horror, increasingly convinced they were to be massacred. There's no sense of the aggression and determination of the South to expand slavery by any means necessary. There's no admission that Southern terrorism was already underway in Kansas before John Brown came in answer to a distress call from his own family in the territory. There's no acknowledgement that black people in the North, free and fugitive, were outraged and terrorized by the Fugitive Slave Law, and that many patient Northerners felt violated and abused by its requirements. Nor is there any sense of the guilt and hypocrisy of the Christian South, feeding off of the sweat and blood of their hapless black chattel. All Scott understood of the antebellum drama of abolition was that it was a grand liberal heresy foisted upon the South that, quote, resulted in a long, terrible, and avoidable war and punitive peace, end quote. All that mattered to him was that abolitionists had so skewed the world by their doctrines that even future whites, such as white Afrikaners during apartheid, would suffer as a result, just as anti-white terrorism was descending upon the world because of the, quote, boomeranging back, end quote, of the abolitionist heresy. After Otto Scott's death, one of his family members recalled that although his work has proceeded without fanfare, it has not gone unnoticed. This is true enough. His influence remains real in the marginal subcultures of neo-confederacy and reactionary right-wing Christianity. His work on John Brown has not gone unnoticed either, since it remains authoritative and usable for such audiences. However, Scott's work lacks the substance of truth and integrity. He not only writes from a standpoint of error, but also from one of tragic self-deception. Scott was a man who gave the whole of his life to twisting history to benefit corporations, slaveholders, and to an alleged white racial superiority. Gifted with doubtless ability and intelligence, yet his intelligence was wasted on the pride of a fallen slave empire, and every gesture of accusation he pointed at others will come back to rest upon his legacy. Otto Scott lived on the wrong side of history and left a legacy of white racist pride and denial. As a historian, he had real ability and sensibility, even a sense of obligation to time and eternity. Yet often, these make the worst kinds of people when they align themselves to the side of oppression. Were he merely a stupid reactionary or a paid literary assassin, Otto Scott would have been easy to ignore. He once remarked, quote, I do not regard the past as dead. On the contrary, I regard the past and the present and even the future as part of an eternal reality, end quote. He concluded that his generation faced the same tests encountered by former generations. Again, he says, all I do is remind my contemporaries that eternity watches us forever. It is unfortunate that a man with such a broad scope did not learn from the failure of preceding generations. John Brown was himself quite aware of that eternal reality, and he could have taught Otto Scott a few lessons had this writer for hire been willing to learn from history. But instead of deploring those sins, Otto Scott personified them as an apologist and even magnified them by making wrong into right and right into wrong. Like the villainous Haman in the Chronicles of the Hebrews, the fool who erects a gallows for the just may find himself hanged on a scaffold of his own error, if only in historical retrospect. And so hangs Otto Scott, the fool as biographer. 
From New York City, this has been Louis A. DeCaro Jr., and this is John Brown Today. Thank you.